Good morning. Very happy to be here. Uh, I am a native Okie. I'm from Ardmore and lived there till I was 15 and then moved to Oklahoma City and graduated from Putnam City High School. And it was while I was at Putnam City, uh, my story is not unlike yours. Uh, I had been baptized in the church at a young age, but while I was in Putnam City, involved in FCA, uh, that I really became to know Christ in a very personal way, and uh, it changed my life. So, Don Jemerson, Kent Bowles, thank you for the wonderful work you're doing here. It makes a eternal, an, an eternal difference for people. Thank you for that. Thank you, for Wade, for having me here. It's great to see my friend Don Gilmore. And... Uh, very, very happy as uh, one living in the wilderness to be home. Uh, I identify with the psalmist who said, how do you sing the Lord's song in a strange land? But uh, I would want you to know that in Austin, Texas, at the First Baptist Church, there are real Christians there. <laughs> and they do love Christ, and they seek to be faithful in their discipleship. Uh, I served for two years as a chaplain to the Longhorn football team during Vince Young's freshman and sophomore years, I never told them of my allegiance. I was a spy in their midst. <laughs> and, oh, you beat them while I was a chaplain. I just took a certain pleasure in that, I admit. Let me read th uh, three scriptures to you uh, briefly. These three scriptures all come together. They are from Luke's Gospel. One is about Jesus' baptism. The second is about Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. And the third is his declaration of his mission. And I'm going to suggest to you that all three of these scriptures are meant to be of one piece. They're like a triptych, uh, which is a three-panel painting. And each one stands alone, but together they have a larger story. So here's the first one from Luke 3. It just says this, Now when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, This is my Son, my beloved, in whom I take great delight. And then it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, notice the word if, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, the world that is, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him again, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him yet again, it is said, and it is written, Do not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an, opportunity, until an opportune time. And this is the third part. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in the synagogues and was 
praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he'd gone home, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. And this is what Jesus read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the edge of the cliff on which their town was built, so that they might throw him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Set that down. May we pray. Words and word, O God, among the many words we hear in this hour, find us with the living word of Christ. Amen. Prior to serving First Baptist Church of Austin, I was pastor of a church in Jackson, Mississippi called Northminster. It was a highly affluent, very influential congregation whose influence proved to be far beyond what I anticipated. Let me explain. During my second year in Jackson, I was invited to do a week of preaching at a church in Wilton, Connecticut, which is a suburb of New York City. And some of my Jackson members found out and called me and said, listen, we want you to go up early, stay in New York and see a Broadway show and tell us which one and we're going to take care of it for you. Wow. I get from Oklahoma. I'd never been to Broadway. Uh, Well, Miss Saigon was uh, getting a lot of review in that time, a lot of interest. That tells you how many years ago it was. And the other play was a new one called Will Rogers Follies. Well, what choice did I have? I decided to go see good old Will Rogers. Fine, they said, your ticket will be at Will Call. So I arrived early. I noticed that there was a lot of press outside the theater, and I thought, oh, they're probably here because the show's fairly new. I went to the Will Call window, picked up my ticket, and it said, row A, seat one. Oh, my gosh. Row A, seat one, my first Broadway show. This is unbelievable. I went inside, and it was even better. It was a regular theater with one major exception. On the left side of the theater, there was elevated seating seating that curved onto the stage. And there were four rows in this elevated seating with five beautifully upholstered chairs on each row. And that's where I was seated, row A, seat one. The show was about the Ziegfeld Follies and Will Rogers' part in the Follies. I never knew that about him. But it was, I was so close to the stage that the Ziegfeld Folly girls danced over there and the feathers from their boas around their neck fell in my lap. I was on the stage, as it were. When I went to my seat, got there early, no one was on my row or the row behind me. And then just before the curtain went up, in walked four people. Mary Hart from the Entertainment Tonight show and her, was with her husband, and she sat next to me. And Paula Zahn, at that time with CBS Morning Show, and her husband was seated next to Mary Hart and her husband. And me. (laughs) But the row behind us was still empty. And then just as the curtain began to rise, in walked Donald Trump, 
and his girlfriend at the time, Marla Maples, and three, count them, three bodyguards. Just so you get the picture here, I I'm in row A, <laughs> seat one, and the Donald, we call each other things like that. Um, <laughs> The Donald is in row B, seat one. I have a better seat than Donald Trump. And I am in so awe of my church members now who somehow got this ticket. Now you can see people in the theater craning their necks to see who was there. And suddenly I understood all the press outside the theater. And these folks are thinking, what? That's Donald Trump. And that's his latest girlfriend. <laughs> and that's Mary Hart and Paula Zahn. But who's that? big gray-headed fat guy in the best seat. <laughs> Who is that? He must be in some movies and we just don't recognize him. Well, as the intermission drew close, I began to feel very anxious. What if Mary Hart spoke to me? What would I say? And, and I, I just I quit thinking. I, I just couldn't enjoy the show at all. I, I, didn't, I did not want to look like a fool, and that's all I could focus on. And sure enough, the lights came up. Mary Hart spins to the right. And says to me, hi, I'm Mary Hart, who are you? <laughs> she said it so nicely. But how I heard it was, who the heck are you and what are you doing sitting next to me? And I thought to myself, I am nobody. Trust me, I am not even a person in this moment. I don't exist. I have no reason for being here. I'm so sorry for taking this seat. I'm sure one of your friends wanted this seat. Please forgive me for breathing. I'm sorry. <laughs> Who are you? Who are you? That is the question, isn't it? No matter our age, whether we're teenagers, young adults, middle-aged adults, whether we're getting, living into retirement or even coming to the end of our days, we all struggle with the question, who am I? What is my identity? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Can I be a missionary somewhere other than Africa? The world very quickly tries to tell us who we are, does tell us who we are, and we are just as quickly put a lot of identities on ourselves. We're students, we're lawyers, we're doctors, we're teachers, we're moms, we're wives, we're sons, we're black, we're brown, we're Asian, we're Catholic, we're Protestant, we're Jew, we're Muslim, we're Republican, we're Democrat, we're all these different things. And all of those mostly are helpful, but none of them tell the whole story of who we are. I am white. I am kind of pasty white. I am Baptist. I am male. I am educated. I am a father. I am from Oklahoma. And all those modifiers tell significant things about me, but they do not tell the whole story. I am white, but my mother was one-fourth Cherokee, so I'm more than just Anglo. I am Baptist, but my father's family were Quakers, and some of those people left and became Methodists when they moved here because they could find no Quaker meetings in Oklahoma in those days. I'm from Oklahoma, but my family is from Indiana and England and Germany and North Carolina Cherokee Territory. I am educated, but as my history professor at Baylor used to say, the first understanding about being educated is realizing how little you actually know. Because until then, you can't learn anything. I am male, but we all contain both X and Y chromosomes. I am a pastor, 
But God help me if that is all I am. If I am not first a person and a person in Christ, then I have lost my way. No modifiers fully define who we are, nor should they. But the story of our faith does. The story of our faith is taking, is to, to, takes our stories into, uh, takes the stories of Scripture into our stories and gives us a new identity. It tells us who and whose we are, and that's what we hear in these incredibly rich texts for this day. The writer of Deuteronomy tells the story of the children of Israel being directed by Moses to observe the work of remembering when you enter the promised land. So he says, when you harvest the first fruits of the ground and offer them to God, offer the best of what you have and, and here's the key thing, tell this story. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. Don't ever forget to tell that story. That's your story. We've taken this text of first fruits and we've turned it into a Pledge Sunday campaign, and that's fine, but it's primarily an identity text. You give first fruits as a sign of thanksgiving for who and whose you are. And you tell that story, and you keep telling that story. And each person who tells this story of the community finds a new understanding of themselves. So even in Israel in those days, even the youngest among them would say, that's me. I'm part of that great nation. I cried out to the Lord when I was oppressed, and the Lord heard my voice and brought me out of Egypt. And here I am in the promised land offering my thanksgiving. You see, there's a lot more in that text than just about pledging a church budget. The gospel companion to this piece is found in the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. It's the temptation story, and it stands alone as a powerful picture of Jesus clarifying his mission and his purpose and his identity. And as I said, it's a part of an identity triptych, like a painting in three panels. Each panel stands alone to tell a story, and all three tell a bigger story. And Luke gives us this, starting with Jesus' baptism. And so I have to ask myself, and probably most of you ask yourself this if you've heard this story or read it yourself, why was Jesus being baptized? To be cleansed from sin? Well, no. To find salvation? Of course not. To become a member of a Baptist church? Not really. <laughs> That's supposed to be funny. Um, <laughs> to fulfill a Jewish requirement, a Jewish law? Perhaps. But I would suggest there's another reason. The time of preparation is over. The time for action is here. And his response is to submit himself in humility to a new identity. To be baptized as a symbol of a new purpose and a new identity. And the response that he hears in baptism is a word of blessing from God. This is my son in whom I take great pleasure. In whom I take great joy, great delight. And I think that everything he does from that point on, he does out of the profound confidence that comes from knowing he is God's beloved child. That in him, God took and takes forever great joy and great delight. So armed with this blessing, the second panel in this identity story is a journey into the wilderness. You see, all identity claims have to be tested at some point or another. And now this identity as God's blessed son is being tested against the world's harshest evil. 
He is up against Satan. Now that he has heard the cosmic blessing, blessing, how will he live that out? He goes into the wilderness and there he hears another voice. That's why I laid heavy on this word, if. If you are the son of God, if, if, if. It is a voice of seduction. It is a voice of confusion. It is a voice of reckless power. But in Jesus, it comes up against the new voice, that other voice, the voice of blessing. It's the, that's the voice that tells him who he truly is. It's the voice that helps him discern through Scripture what his purpose is and what he is about. He has been appealed to in the most seductive ways. Make bread out of stones. Worship me and gain power. Test God with the fantastic issues that I see people fall prey to in one form or another in our own day. That's the second part. The third part of the identity panel, the identity painting, the identity triptych is when he returns home. He goes back to his beginnings. He goes back to his roots. He returns to the place of worship where he should be welcomed with open arms. And he reads from the book of Isaiah, a very familiar passage. Now that he has tested his identity in the wilderness, now that the wrestling match with the other voice of seduction has sharpened him, now he comes home and he declares his mission. And listen to his very first words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That is, he is saying, no other spirit. No seductive voice will guide me, he is saying. No voice of power, no voice of ego, no voice of solely human solutions. It is the Spirit of God that will guide me. The Spirit of the Lord consumes me. The Spirit of the Lord fills me. And here's what the Spirit is telling me to do, Jesus says. Announce good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. Proclaim release to the prisoners. And we are prisoners to all kinds of things. Bring sight to the blind, and we are blind in so many ways. Heal broken victims who are around us every day and who live within our own souls. And set them free. And proclaim God's reign in the world. That's his mission. That's his mission. And it has come out of this time of testing, which he went to out of the voice of blessing. And all the heads of these men are nodding. Well done, they're thinking. That's a good reading. And then he drops the big word on them. Today. Today this has come true. And they even like that. And at least they did until they asked him, not unlike the other voices in the wilderness, to show his powers. And when he said he couldn't do powers there because of their unbelief, well, the story says, Luke writes, that he found himself about to be thrown over a cliff. And then I love this part, this line. He walked right through the crowd. His identity from his blessing his identity from his testing and struggle, his identity from declaring himself. And in this clarity of purpose and clarity of self, he walked right through the middle of all the hostile forces in this world because he had work to do. You don't do that unless you know who you are and whose you are. You cannot be about the business for which you were given breath unless you know who and whose you are. 
One story and I'll finish. Fred Craddock was a former professor preaching at Phillips University when it was in Enid. And he tells a story of going on vacation with his wife and they went back to the Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee where he'd grown up. They'd gone back to visit family and they'd driven all day and they got there late at night and went to dinner at their favorite restaurant. And while they were eating, an old man came up and said, hi, how are you folks? And fine, said Craddock. Well, it's good to have you folks here. He said, where are you from? Oklahoma, said Craddock, who said, I'm thinking to myself, I, I just want to have dinner with my wife. Hey, you know. What do you do out there? And Craddock said, you know, we, we got away from the kids. I really like to get away from this old man, but being polite, he said, well, I'm a, I'm a preacher. A preacher? Boy, do I have a story for you. And the old man pulled up a chair and began to tell the story of his life like we old men do. <laughs> and he talked about the fact that he grew up in the mountains of East Tennessee, about the fact that his mom and daddy never married. He never knew who his father was. Talked about the shame that came with that in a small town where he was raised and the word that they used to describe him. And how he hated the things people said, the way they whispered about his mama the things kids said to him at school. He talked about trying to get away from that and how he would take long walks in the East Tennessee woods and find some peace and quiet. Then he talked about a church he found in those woods where he found a little solace. And he said, I would, I would slip into that church after service and sit on the back pew, and just before the service was out, I would slip out so no one would speak to me. I love that church and that preacher and his great big voice and I went back week after week but one day I, I got caught up in the service and I forgot to get out and I got trapped in the aisle and I was trying to wiggle free when I felt this hand fall on my shoulder and I turned around and I looked up in the face of that great huge burly preacher and he said boy who are you who are you and where do you come from? I, I thought I was going to die. And he said, wait a minute, boy, I know who you are. And I'm thinking, oh, not you too. I know who you are. You're a, you're a child of God. And he turned me around and swatted me on the seat of my pants. And he said, boy, go out and claim your inheritance. Meanwhile, back at the restaurant, Craddock turned to the old man. He said, old man, what's your name? The old man said, Ben Hooper. Craddock said, Ben Hooper, Ben Hooper. He said, you know, I could swear I heard my daddy tell about a man who had twice been governor of the state of Tennessee, who'd been born an illegitimate child. I could swear his name was Ben Hooper. The old man said, that's right. And I just told you the day when I discovered who I really am. This morning, we've heard much about running the race of faith, about keeping your eyes focused, about the reward at the end of the race. But here's the thing. There are a lot of races in our life. There's the daily rat race, and there's the race to success, and there's the race to somehow authenticate ourselves as worthwhile. There's a race to define ourselves as important and a race to make ourselves feel so good. 
in a race to get ahead of everybody else. But all those races can be run without ever knowing who you truly are. They are attempts, they are attempts, they are attempts to discover who you are is really what they are. But those kind of races are done under their own power. But you don't really discover your identity by trying to find it in those kind of races defined by the world. That identity comes by hearing the word of blessing. You are a child of God in whom God takes great delight. That identity comes by testing that word of blessing against all the voices of seduction that are out there. And that identity gets clarified as you step into the purpose and mission of your life and why you're here. And when you claim that identity as your inheritance in Christ, you will never run that race alone. And all along the way, you will discover every day in all kinds of ways what it truly means to be a person in Christ. For that, my friends, is your and my true identity. Let us claim it and run the race.